Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for September 14, 2018. Last week, during confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, senators sought some hints as to the judge's stance on an array of salient legal issues, among them the flow of substantial sums of money, often opaque, into the political process and high-stakes Supreme Court litigation, and also the constitutionality of limits on such spending or required disclosures identifying its origins. Kavanaugh, of course, was non-committal on that point, but we may find out his opinion soon enough as a Ninth Circuit ruling rendered Tuesday involving compelled financial disclosures of the Koch Industries-backed Americans for Prosperity Foundation seems poised to wind up in the Supreme Court docket in the next term or two. Specifically, a unanimous panel overturned a lower court's injunction and held that California could permissibly require the 501c3 charity to disclose to the state information on its most substantial donors. The group had claimed such disclosures violated their First Amendment right to free association by deterring donors who might fear politically based reprisal from the state or harassment and threats from Californians generally were the disclosures to become public. Welcome, Amici, from both sides. This case to the show in just a few minutes. Tara Malloy and Megan McCallan from the Campaign Legal Center contend suits like this one are just the latest attempt by mega donors to insulate their political efforts from oversight and public view. And they say California's interest in ensuring charities in the state mind the restrictions placed upon them as to political spending outweighs the potential harm caused by the donor disclosures. On the other side, Jeremy Talcott, who helped author a brief for the Pacific Legal Foundation, says California's interest cannot stand up to the exacting scrutiny courts apply to laws like this, which in his view will have a genuine chilling effect on the group's donors or potential donors and perhaps subject them to legitimate threats of harm. Before welcoming in our guests, let me remind you a couple things. First, listeners of this episode of the podcast can receive CLE credit for having tuned in. You need to find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Take that in one California CLE credit can be yours. Also, if you're listening to us on the dailyjournal.com website, don't forget that you can also tune in to us on the go by looking up weekly appellate report on the iTunes or podcast app on iOS devices. Okay, with that, let's bring in two attorneys from the Campaign Legal Center. We're joined by Tara Malloy, Senior Director of Appellate Litigation and Strategy. Tara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. And Megan McCallan, Senior Legal Counsel of Appellate Litigation there at the Campaign Legal Center. Megan, welcome into the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Okay, so this ruling from the Ninth Circuit down earlier this week dealt with the the question of whether or not it violates the First Amendment to require a tax-exempt charity to disclose its donor information to the state of California. Uh, Tara, why is that question of significance and how does that constitutional question fit into sort of a, a broader context in the post-Citizens United world over fights relating to campaign financing and often less than transparent flows of money to different organizations. What um, what is sort of the the broader context here? Yeah, I think that it is very important to put this specific case in the broader national context. As you mentioned, this was, in terms of the actual litigation, a challenge by certain nonprofit groups to California's specific requirement that it disclose its Schedule Bs, which involves the disclosure of its biggest donors. And that was the subject of this particular case. However, we are seeing probably over the last decade a concerted effort to an ideological war against campaign finance regulation, against political disclosure, against oversight of nonprofits, which are always, uh, which are increasingly very active in the political sphere. So this case brought by the Americans for Prosperity uh, is really just one of dozens of cases attacking these type of laws. And in fact, 
this is only one case of three that all attack state requirements that nonprofits active in the state filed their donors with the state entity. So, again, this is not just a one-off case. It's part of a much broader ideological uh, battle about the degree to which uh, the government will be transparent, that nonprofits and political activity will be uh, transparent, and how we uh, regulate our elections and uh, areas of political debate. There are certain guidelines and restrictions that 501c3 charities like the ones here, probably most noteworthy, the Americans for Prosperity Foundation linked to the broader Americans for Prosperity umbrella, the the Koch brothers political arm of their Koch Industries um, organization. Those groups agree the 501c3s to not use their, their money towards sort of political ends, right? Although that limitation is a bit fuzzy because they're um, are plenty of ways that such money can be used in ways that resemble political action, though termed public education, like running uh, advertisements not for political candidates, but for issues that might factor into uh, to political campaigns. Um, wh- what exactly are the, the boundaries circumscribing what uh, 501c3 charities can do, Tara? Sure. 501 is a section of the Internal Revenue Code, and it sets forth various uh, exempt purposes that groups can be formed under. And for each exempt purpose, there's a slightly different tax treatment. 501c3 is uh, reserved for charities, uh, groups that engage in uh, charitable work or education um, or the arts. And not only do they get an exemption for their uh, income and revenue, but they also get uh, a deduction for, or rather donors to those groups get a deduction for their contributions. So they're sort of the most favored of the groups. The other one that I would note is the 501c4, which maybe listeners have heard of of late, because these are the social welfare groups that have probably been the most active in the political sphere. As you noted, 501c3s are under law um, not uh, permitted to engage in what is known as campaign intervention. But the IRS has uh, sort of defined this fairly well, in a broad but narrow way, uh, really just to in, uh, relate to candidate campaigns, to advocating for and against a candidate. Uh, this does not apply to ballot measures, which, of course, are big electoral events in a lot of the uh, states, um, including California. This also doesn't involve issue advocacy. Uh, the line between candidate advocacy and issue advocacy is always under hot uh, debate, and certainly you, as or C3, no doubt the Americans for Prosperity could attack pet policies of candidates shortly before an election. And probably if they did not mention those candidates, it would still be seen as issue advocacy and thus permissible for a 501c3. So although by law, a 501c3 cannot sort of advocate sort of directly for a candidate, they can um, advocate for ballot measures and they certainly can engage in policy debates, even in ways that may very well affect elections. As to the specific group here, the Americans for Prosperity Foundation, the, the Cook brothers have seemed to be at, at the center of the public discourse when it comes to whether campaign contributions and avenues through which contributions can flow should be more or less restricted by the government. I get, does, does the fact that this is the group that's involved make this case uh, more more salient, do you think, Tara? Um, well, I think that the Koch brothers are just one of uh, a small group of very, very elite mega donors, um, which probably one of the few that sort of have actually broken through to the public consciousness as well. 
So I think that their that their involvement, of course, raises the profile of this case, not only because it's an ideological battle, but because I'm sure they see these types of laws as a real hindrance on their sort of attempt to sort of overtake uh, the political debate and weigh in and spend as much money or huge amounts of money, at least for the, the average um, person, to affect our policy debate. So that has raised the profile. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, this is a concern not unique to the Koch brothers. I think pretty much all of what I'll call the mega donors um, more or less wish to operate in secrecy and anonymity. Megan, could you describe to me what, what exactly the state of California is requiring of groups like the, the plaintiffs here um, in terms of disclosure? Is it basically just who is giving those organizations money? And with that sort of information, what is the state hoping to police? Because um, if maybe the, the most salient restriction on these organizations is how they can spend their money, how uh, is the state informed exactly, you know, whether or not the group's working towards the political purpose um, just by, based on, uh, I guess, who is giving them money? Well, this requirement is, again, a non-public disclosure requirement that obligates groups to submit the very same information that they submit annually to the federal IRS uh, in compliance with their tax obligations. Um, the Schedule B form, which there's a tendency to, to conflate the compelled disclosure of organizational donor or rank-and-file member lists in their entirety. Um, that's what was involved in the seminal 1950s Alabama, NAACP v. Alabama case, um, and laws like this that require more limited large donor reporting to the state. So, for instance, Americans for Prosperity Foundation is a group that claims, I think, around 2 million members um, and has a budget of around 24 or $25 million. Um, but its Schedule B form only disclosed 10 people on average in the last five years before this litigation began. So the, the requirement to disclose these large donors for groups like the two plaintiffs in this case only applies to... Um, persons who either contributed $5,000 or more, or in, in this case, people who contributed in excess of 2% of the total contributions received by the group. So in this case, that means um, the law center was obligated to report no more than seven contributors, and the uh, Americans for Prosperity Foundation disclosed no more than 10, and all of those people contributed over $250,000 to the foundation. Uh, and the reason that California requests this information from nonprofits is to ensure that charities operating within the state and claiming tax exemption and deductions for their donors are doing so in compliance with the law, and it's to prevent state taxpayers from you know, suffering fraud at the hands of these um, charitable organizations that are receiving a state subsidy. Okay, yeah, we could plant a flag and on, on one thing that you mentioned, I'm sure we'll, we'll circle back to it, that the, the specific types of disclosures here are not ones made public generally, um, at least in, in theory, but just to the state. Of course, there's some sort of factual dispute in, in, in the filings and in the case as to just how secure the uh, disclosures between these organizations and the state are, but we'll get more into that in just a minute. Um, Tara, the in many ways, the broad contours of this case do kind of sound like that uh, 1950s NAACP case that Megan mentioned, really the the um, hallmark of first free association jurisprudence. Um, so did the arguments brought forth by the plaintiffs come from that case and, and that uh, that line of argument? Well, yes. And I think that um, 
we're beginning to reach one of the really uh, key uh, distinctions of this AFP case, and that is that at least by design, this disclosure requirement is really a reporting requirement on a confidential basis to California State. So it's not on all fours with the cases that involve uh, disclosure publicly of, for instance, campaign contributors or the donors funding, say, groups running advertising for ballot measures. Uh, so it's always a, it was always a bit of a difficult fit to take this case, which is a confidential reporting requirement for state enforcement purposes, and plug it into the First Amendment case law on political disclosure, which is almost always in the past public. Um, so I think already that's a big distinction between this case and NAACP. And I know that, you know, one of the big issues in the case, of course, uh, which we could discuss too, was the degree to which California may have inadvertently or accidentally disclosed some of the Schedule Bs and the donors um, that had been reported to it. But really, the actual law simply required confidential reporting. So we, as the Campaign Legal Center, who are most concerned with campaign finance and electoral law, we were concerned because the resort here, however, was still to uh, public disclosure and campaign finance case law. That was the jurisprudence under which both the uh, plaintiffs and the defendants were operating. So our concern was that they were going to do real damage to this jurisprudence, or rather AFP was, in their attempt to sort of wiggle out from this very specific California reporting requirement. And one of the ways, there are two big arguments that were very problematic in our eyes. One, um, AFP and, you know, the other plaintiffs were sort of arguing that the loss of anonymity for a donor in and of itself was an unconstitutional First Amendment burden. So that even if there was no harm shown, there was no loss of donations by AFP, there was no harassment, uh, they still, simply by virtue of the fact that their donors were no longer anonymous, at least with respect to the California state, that was an injury in and of itself. And sort of the idea that any disclosure however non-public was a First Amendment injury, could have had sort of repercussions in a much broader context. So that was one problem that Campaign Legal Center had with uh, the nature of the arguments here. The second one was that AFP and the other plaintiff claimed uh, that they should have a as-applied exemption to just them because they uh, alleged harassment of their donors, uh, reprisals, retaliation, that type of activity. And NAACP, or rather Buckley v. Vallejo, a case that came after the NAACP, did carve out an exemption from even valid political disclosure laws for those groups that could show, with evidence, a reasonable probability that their donors would be harassed, uh, subject to reprisals, etc., if their names were made public. And the bar for this, though, has been fairly high. You, as a group, let's say um, Americans for Prosperity here, can't simply say, oh, we, we're kind of afraid of harassment or, you know, once somebody got a mean voicemail and therefore all of our donors should be secret. Uh, you know, you actually have to show with evidence a reasonable probability that harassment will occur. And the exemption's only been granted to two different, as far as I know, um, on the national level. It's only been given to very sort of unpopular or um, groups facing great hostility. And that would be the Socialist Party and the Communist Party, ones that really there was a great fear of physical retaliation as well as other uh, types of harassment. So we were concerned uh, as a second issue with this case that AFP was kind of going to explode this exception to the rule 
and allow any group that sort of made any allegation of problems um, to uh, evade disclosure. So it was both the idea that the loss of anonymity in and of itself is a First Amendment violation and the idea that there was really no evidentiary bar at all to claiming harassment and therefore an exemption from disclosure that we found very problematic. Yeah, it seems interesting that that second piece, um, the argument that donors could be subjected to harassment because of these disclosures seems to us sort of assume or at least assume there's a high risk that then the, the disclosures would be made public, I guess, mm-hmm. unless the, the reprisal would come from within the, the California Attorney General's office or the, the tax division of the California um, government. Um, what, what also was the, um, I guess, reasoning underlying the fear or the, the purported fear is just that the policy is generally put forth by the, the Americans for Prosperity Organization and the Koch brothers are not um, common currency out here in, in California. Uh, uh, Megan? Um, well, most of AFP's evidence really involved um, testimony from well-known pub- public figures and donors associated with the group that they had been subject to criticism largely in relation to their public political stances that, and it may or may not have been connected to work with or affiliation with AFP itself. In fact, most of these witnesses were far more than mere contributors. Um, they were, you know, people who voluntarily put themselves out there as connected to the organization. Right. And, and you know, another, as you were beginning to um, bring up, you know, there, there was a huge uh, dispute about the degree to which this is even public information. Um, the IRS, uh, other states that collect Schedule Bs, uh, they all do so on a confidential basis, and there really should be no disclosure. I think the court, the district court below, acknowledged that there could be human error ever, always when you know a state agency takes in forms and has to make some public. That is the rest of um, the 990 or annual return of a nonprofit that has to keep other parts confidential, such as the Schedule Bs with donor information. There's always a possibility that some are going to be inadvertently disclosed. It did seem like, or at least according to the district court, that California had had a particular problem with inadvertent disclosure. And and this is sort of the more controversial part. The AFP and the plaintiffs seem, seemingly had hired someone to kind of do a internet phishing uh, attempt to see what kind of documents they could find on the California AG's website. Not ones that were sort of made available, but that you could find by typing in the unique URL address. Um, and so in a more sophisticated attempt, they sort of almost quasi-hacked the California website, but it certainly was not as secure as it could be, and they found thousands of Schedule Bs that were not made public, but could be found by a concerted effort on the Internet. So there was this whole aspect of the case that concerned how airtight, so to speak, California's um, holding of these Schedule Bs uh, was done on a confidential basis. So that was a concern, and that's why I think they kind of got a hook into this harassment uh, exemption question, because as you kind of intimate, you know, it's kind of ridiculous to think that a donor is going to be harassed if their name is never known to the public. But here they had this kind of concerns about the Internet um, security of the website that sort of at least allowed uh, the um, plaintiffs a little bit of rope to uh, make this argument. And just to add to that, uh, when the case began, the the Attorney General had an informal policy of keeping these Schedule Bs confidential, but it didn't have a formal rule requiring that they would not be subject to public disclosure uh, under the State Public Records Act. During the pendency of the litigation, the Attorney General did adopt a rule ensuring that they would be kept confidential, so that 
sort of background concern went away. Sure. I think um, for many of the cases, so in, um, in theory, the only times these disclosures do come out is if there's a subsequent, I think, investigation into potential fraud by the, the organization. Is, is that, do I have that right? I, I think that's right. And, you know, even, even then, uh, you know, by regulation, just made explicit what was always, I think, implicit, which is that, you know, Schedule B information really almost is never disclosed by the state. Sometimes there's not even disclosure of donor information between government agencies permitted by law. Um, so, you know, it's really supposed to be kind of put into a black box for the state AG simply to use for their own enforcement purposes, um, which, you know, go far beyond the political uh, arena, which, you know, CLC is primarily concerned with. But C3s or charities, there are lots of different uh, rules for um, their operation. There's supposed to be no self-dealing. You know, you're not supposed to provide any private benefit to insiders, to the organization, supposed to prevent fraud. They're not supposed to engage in unrelated business activities. So, you know, C3s have to comply with a whole host of laws uh, to sort of match their privileged tax status and the fact that they get basically uh, um, the benefit of deductions for their contr- contributions. So there's this whole arena that the state AG is operating in uh, that require the um, use of Schedule Bs, which was recognized by the Ninth Circuit. Um, but that said, they're really supposed to keep the Schedule Bs uh, very much for their own enforcement purposes and not um, share them even in throughout government for other for other reasons. Okay. Um, so, Megan, could you describe to me how the how the, the the panel reaches its decision here? The the court below had granted an injunction to the plaintiffs, um, but it seems like the panel thinks that lower court applied too strict, too rigorous of a, a standard of review. Um, the panel seemed to apply here as sort of a, a balancing test, and it concluded that those concerns that plaintiffs brought forward and that Tara just described basically were outweighed by by a, a greater and um, countervailing governmental interest in policing attacks and, and charity fraud. Is that um, roughly the uh, the approach the panel took? Yeah, that's roughly correct. Um, the standard of scrutiny that generally applies to disclosure laws is has been termed exacting scrutiny, which uh, sounds demanding, but it it tends to be uh, viewed as somewhat less rigorous than traditional strict constitutional scrutiny. So it does not require um, a least restrictive means test or narrow tailoring to a compelling interest, but instead requires that uh, disclosure law be supported by a sufficiently important public interest, uh, state interest, and uh, be sufficiently tailored to it or substantially related to it. Um, So the court really looked at the proffered state interest that the California Attorney General provided, which was, you know, its law enforcement interests and the need to police charitable fraud and protect state taxpayers and weighed that against the actual burdens on First Amendment associational rights asserted by the plaintiffs here based on the evidence that they had presented in court below. Um, and really, I think the, the court found that there was no sufficiently substantial evidence that there would be a drop-off in contributions to these groups as a result of this non-public disclosure requirement. So that concern about associational chill um, was obviated. And even assuming arguendo that its concerns about potential harassment or threats were valid and considerable. Um, the fact that this is a non-public confidential disclosure requirement meant that there was no real risk of 
of that harassment taking place as a result of the requirement they're challenging. Tara, as to the specific question, I guess the, the, the panel mentioned a case from the Second Circuit. So has this specific question as it pertains to Schedule Bs um, collected by states been been dealt with elsewhere? Uh, yes, it has. As sort of I just um, suggested initially, this is sort of a broader ideological battle. Uh, there was a almost parallel case brought to challenge the very similar New York State requirement that charities active in New York, and I think actually 501c4s too, active in New York, would also have to provide on a confidential basis their Schedule Bs to the New York State AG, again, for the um, AG's sort of nonprofit enforcement purposes. That was challenged by a name that may be familiar to all, which was Citizens United. Uh, yes, exactly the same Citizens United that um, is on the uh, caption of the famous campaign finance decision. That group challenged uh, the um, Schedule B requirement of New York, basically making the same arguments that AFP does here. Um, that was rejected by the Second Circuit. New York State also enjoyed the fact that they didn't really have the inadvertent disclosure aspect um, to their case. So really, it was, as I said, it was a bit of a stretch, I think, for the um, plaintiffs there to argue that there was really going to be any publicity or any kind of harms from publicity at all. Uh, another group, uh, the Center for Competitive Politics, uh, challenged the California uh, Schedule B requirement just a year or so earlier than AFP, and the Ninth Circuit had already rejected their attempt uh, to kind of knock down the Schedule B requirement. So, you know, there's been this continual effort um, to eliminate the state oversight of nonprofits. Um, and, you know, to go even a further step back, I think that at the federal level, the IRS has been criticized by, well, at least by groups like the Campaign Legal Center for years for their under-enforcement of the um, regulations, particularly the political activity regulations for nonprofits, for 501c3s, and certainly for 501c4s. So I think, uh, if I was going to speculate, that groups like AFP and others don't think there's very much teeth to IRS enforcement or oversight over their activities. Now, New York or California, which may have much more active um, enforcement or much more active AGs, I think they see it as a greater threat. Um, so that may be why they're focusing their um, firepower on these state sort of counterpart regulatory regimes um, as opposed to simply the IRS. And then finally, you know, there's this broader war on transparency in our eyes. They would see it as government, you know, um, obtrusiveness, um, which would make it very unsurprising uh, for AFP to continue this case. I, I would almost think it would be certain that they'd seek and bank review or maybe even a petition for cert to the Supreme Court. And then, you know, th and again, this is just part of a drumbeat that's been going on all over the nation. Um, the Center for Competitive Politics, um, now the Institute for Free Speech, uh, as I noticed, they had a similar case to AFP. They've had multiple cases challenging political disclosure requirements across the nation. They almost always petition for cert. So far, the Supreme Court has has rejected all these petitions, but there's always been dissenters. Uh, Thomas is very, Justice Thomas is very um, skeptical of disclosure. I think Justice Gorsuch, very skeptical of disclosure. We are very concerned about perhaps a new Justice Kavanaugh, who also has expressed great skepticism. So, uh, you know, AFP is just one player in this broader litigation effort. And one very, very big picture concern is the continuing uh, conservative or maybe just even anti 
reform or anti-transparency trend among the new justices uh, being added to the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, following this case up to a theoretical Supreme Court hearing, I, I guess it, I wonder a bit how a Supreme Court may be ideologically disposed to um, overturn the Ninth Circuit on, on a question like this and, and make it so organizations like AFP would need to disclose less information to a government. Um, but doing so would seem to undercut the fact that the federal government requires this exact same information. It would seem like a, a, a weird uh, path to trod for the court to say that this disclosure is, is unconstitutional, but the one the IRS does it's, that's the same is, is, is fine. Or would you think that perhaps they would bring a broader lens and, and perhaps question the uh, disclosure requirements of the, the federal government too. Um, Tara or Megan, if you have thoughts on that? Well, yeah. I mean, so the national politics is sort of a whole different sphere, but there, I mean, I think, again, there's been a lot of right-wing, um, really more libertarian even, so that's probably the better sort of ideological label. There's been a lot of libertarian right-wing attacks on the IRS regulation of these groups. Uh, you may recall there was a big scandal at the IRS concerning the alleged um, focus on Tea Party groups who had been attempting to gain uh, 501c4 status or a tax exemption under that section. And the accusation uh, was made actually in a inspector general report that the IRS had been improperly targeting using sort of a hot words list groups with uh, the term Tea Party in their name or other sort of conservative-leaning words in their name. And this sort of blew up um, and uh, was a sort of big thorn in the Obama administration's side. And it sort of became proof, at least to uh, these sort of ideological groups, that the IRS was sort of a danger as well, that they would be politically targeting opponents um, of uh, the Obama administration. And this was sort of, you know, a big cause celeb for some time. So I, in other words, I don't think that uh, these groups are particularly happy about uh, reporting to the IRS either. And I certainly don't know that they would, be, would mind at all if the requirements in terms of IRS uh, the reporting were also torn down. It's also noteworthy that the IRS has just eliminated the Schedule B requirement for 501c4s. That's not what AFD is. They are a charity, or that's how they identify, so that doesn't affect them. But there is a continual erosion of oversight and transparency in terms of um, nonprofits. And this has become a big concern in the public and certainly in reform groups like the CLC because of the presence of foreign money in past elections and how it's very, very difficult to know um, who's funding a C3 or C4 that may be quite politically active um, in terms of whether those sources are uh, foreign nationals or even foreign governments. So, you know, there's just less and less information and there's this uh, larger concern. But I don't think actually that... Um, as I said, AFP would mind at all if the IRS uh, regulatory regime were cut back. Now, whether the Supreme Court will go along, I don't know. Um, I think there may be a couple of justices like Justice Thomas that would agree, but it does seem that uh, some of the more conservative-leaning justices, such as Justice Roberts, at least are on the books as being um, supportive of political disclosure. So they would have to do a little bit of fancy footwork, I think, to go back on some of their earlier decisions, for instance, in Citizens United. Um, and elsewhere that had upheld um, what would seem to be far more public and far more um, onerous uh, disclosure requirements. I don't know if you want to add anything, Megan. Um, well, I, I think just our concern in this case is that the nature of the evidence that these groups provided in the trial court would have made it possible for any group to 
you know, submit some evidence that some loosely affiliated member or, you know, potentially a prominent leader of the organization had been criticized about something somewhere at some time. And because of that, any kind of disclosure requirement would, you know, potentially expose them to harassment and they were entitled to an exemption from an otherwise facially valid law. Um, obviously, that would enable especially the wealthy and powerful groups that al- already wield outsized influence in our elections to uh, use this loophole to, uh, as an excuse to avoid all disclosure. And I-, I think that would just redound to the benefit of these same groups that have turned the system to their advantage already. And I think that um, that's an important point, the way that sometimes these disclosure laws are not always um, challenged, sort of like facially or sort of direct hits, they are sort of slowly undercut by the uh, inflation of these exemptions or creating loopholes in the law. And that um, certainly uh, if groups like AFP or very popular groups that do not seem to be particularly burdened by harassment were allowed to get these exemptions, it would sort of make a mockery of the law. But I'd also want to note that, you know, the Campaign Legal Center, even as a campaign finance reform proponent, uh, does not at all oppose the um, grant of an exemption for groups that truly do show harassment. I think we supported the Socialist Party's more recent request to have their exemption renewed. Uh, certainly any group that were tantamount to the NAACP in 1950s um, Alabama would be similar. So there's certainly a time and place for an as-applied exemption based on harassment. Our concern is simply that you can't uh, throw in one affidavit from a president uh, alleging criticism or online harassment and suddenly blow up the law. Let me just one last one. And I don't know if this sort of re-asks the same question about the broader context, but I'm just trying to get a, a, a clear sense of how big of a piece this this case and this question is into the larger issue of um, sort of non-transparent campaign political uh, legal contributions. If, 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 say, maybe stipulate that sort of the average voter taxpayer um, would like to know a little bit more about who funds um, candidates in elections or who, as was kind of made a point of by uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse at the the Kavanaugh hearings last week, who maybe funds amicus filings in in major Supreme Court and and, uh, cases. Um, You know, how, how far does this case get you? Because the disclosures now required and approved of here by the panel are just to the state, not to the uh, the public generally. So how I guess how significant is this um, this d- decision, Atara? Yeah, well, um, it's significant, I think, mainly because it maintains a status quo, which, as you uh, mentioned, may not be satisfactory to many as it currently stands. Um, I think that the case has the potential to greatly undercut uh, the jurisprudence that generally has been supportive of disclosure. I'm not sure we have really moved forward simply because California's won. It simply meant that AFP and the other plaintiff here hasn't sort of blown a, a loophole into the law. So in that sense, I'm not sure that there's going to be a great impact on disclosure in the sense that suddenly viewers are going to get a lot more information. Um, but I do think that had California lost or had the harassment exemptions that have been blown up, um, that could have really uh, impact, impacted uh, the information available to voters right now in a very uh, detrimental way. So I think we it's more like we avoided um, a, a, um, 
a huge problem as opposed to really took a huge step forward. But, you know, at this point right now, uh, campaign finance proponents are just happy when we um, uh, aren't sliding backwards, uh, given the current judicial and uh, political context in which we operate. Tara Malloy, Senior Director, Appellate Litigation and Strategy for the Campaign Legal Center. Tara, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Thank you. And Megan McCallan, Senior Legal Counsel at the Campaign Legal Center. Thanks also for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Jeremy Talca, an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, he filed an amicus brief in this case and contends the disclosures at issue do, in fact, violate the plaintiff's First Amendment rights to free association. Joins me now. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so listeners have just heard from two attorneys with the Campaign Legal Center, making the case that the Ninth Circuit panel got this one right. In your view, the, the panel got it wrong, in fact. Um, why do you think that it is a First Amendment violation for the state to require the sort of disclosures that are at issue here? Well, I think, uh, you know, obviously, uh, going back to the Supreme Court precedent of NAACP v. Alabama, um, there's a recognition that uh, disclosure is, in fact, a First Amendment injury. And I think the panel here, uh, in this case and in Center for Competitive Politics, has focused very, you know, very heavily on the aspect of disclosure to public, you know, whether or not these documents could end up uh, in the hands of the public and, the, and people could face public harassment because of that disclosure. But of course, uh, disclosure to government itself is a First Amendment injury. I know Tara made the point that that, that case you cite from Alabama, the, the Supreme Court case in from the 1950s, setting sort of the, the clear precedent for free association cases. Um, she argued it was distinguishable because of that point you referenced that here, at least in theory, the only party receiving these disclosures are actors within the California government. So as opposed to their members of, of the public generally might, or at least theoretically should not um, learn of that information and as a result have the opportunity to you know, take action against the, the folks whose names are released. Um, you know, do you nonetheless think that precedent is on point or, you know, how, why do you think that difference is not as significant as here the, the Ninth Circuit does? Well, I think that, um, you know, obviously the, the, the moment of the injury is, is once this disclosure happens, you know, once, once you're no, no longer, uh, once it's no longer confidential, this donor information, regardless of right now, uh, if it's only intended to be uh, used by government actors, uh, you know, there's really no guarantee. Yes, right now there are certain regulations in place that guarantee it's confidential, but of course, uh, government regulations can change in the future, and a future California government uh, in a different place could, for its own reasons, choose to then disclose this donor information to the public, and there's really nothing to stop it. Uh, other than the First Amendment, which grants people these rights to remain uh, private in the first place, so I think I think it, it really kind of misses uh, misses the injury to think it's only a First Amendment injury if, in fact, there's uh, uh, some some clear evidence that the public itself is going to have that information right now and can use it to harass those donors. Just the fact that now government holds that information is going to cause the injury and it's going to lead to the 
chilling of donations from individuals who worry that government actors might use uh, that information against them or might in the future choose to make it public uh, that could lead to this public harassment. Okay, so the, that those specific sort of two items there at the end um, comprise the, the injury stated, as, as you describe it, that there could be deterrence against donors and also that in the future there's a potential public disclosure of the information. Is, is that the extent of, of the injury you describe? Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think certainly uh, there may be people who, it could lead to a chilling effect even amongst people who uh, just think government officials themselves having that information, even in the absence of any future public disclosure, might lead to some sort of harassment or retaliation. Um, so, you know, I think even just the, the fact that that confidentiality cannot be maintained is enough to create a First Amendment injury that can lead to a chilling effect. It's going to harm both donors who wish to uh, be associated with these organizations while remaining anonymous. And it's also a harm to the organizations themselves who, of course, uh, either face foregoing uh, seeking donations in the state of California or being forced to disclose these donor lists. Okay, so... Um, it didn't seem like the Ninth Circuit panel dismissed those potential injuries as, as non-existent. It seemed like they recognized that they they might in fact be injuries, though um, the way that the panel described them, they made them sound you know, not, in their view, terribly great. Um, but the analysis sets up a balance between those potential injuries and then the, the governmental interest involved to ensure that money that flows into charities and then is deducted off the taxes of those that donate um, that money, and also um, on the taxes of the organization itself. Here, the like the American Americans for Prosperity Foundation, um, that the money is put to the ends um, that are allowed by law. So, um, you're notwithstanding that there perhaps could be an injury. Why, in your view, doesn't that balance, in any event, tip towards the government? I think that you know, you know one of the real issues here is they're giving a lot of reliance to what at bottom is really just a general investigative interest. Um, and I think the, you know, the district court, of course, uh, had a bunch of evidence before it that, in fact, this document is rarely, if ever, used. I think the evidence was that perhaps once in all the time that the Schedule B had been collected, it had actually been used in an investigation. And that was after, uh, you know, something else had tipped off investigators to a particular organization. So in fact, you know, the Schedule B itself is not necessarily used to discover fraud. And the panel, uh, uh, and I think this really comes out of the Center for Competitive Politics case, said, well, there's this interest in having the information readily available. But of course, you know, I, I find that it difficult to square that as a compelling interest because that would justify the collection of almost any data. Um, well, it will always be easier for investigators to have a gigantic pool of data sitting from which to draw if in the future they are tipped off to some sort of nefarious activity. So I, I think it's very difficult to use the fact that it makes it easier for investigators to find a document after the fact uh, as a justification and a compelling interest, in fact, to collect data from a large number of law-abiding entities, uh, which are then forced to hand over information about an even larger pool of law-abiding citizens. That um, 
that Center for Competitive Politics case. That was a previous one in the Ninth Circuit, right? That's correct. And, and that's the case. Uh, that case was decided uh, while uh, Americans for Prosperity won was in fact pending, and that was the case that was viewed as in foreclosing a facial challenge uh, to this Schedule B disclosure requirement, which is why uh, this Americans for Prosperity case is focused on an as-applied, uh, you know, it was it was post-trial where the district court uh, gathered evidence and discovered, you know, and, and determined that yes, uh, A, I should say there's, there's evidence that these individuals could face harassment. There was evidence of Americans for Prosperity donors and uh, uh, board members being harassed by the public. And there was also uh, evidence that uh, California had failed quite a bit to to maintain these forms confidentially. In fact, something like 360,000 purportedly confidential documents were available on uh, California's website. Uh, if you simply punched in, kind of, if you understood how the hash code worked, you could access any of these supposedly confidential documents. And also the fact, uh, you know, gathered evidence that in fact this was never used. The state was not really able to put forward this evidence that they used this Schedule B form for any sort of law enforcement purpose other than, as mentioned, this after the fact. It would be really convenient for us to have it rather than issue a subpoena and gather that info. Now, one point that the the panel seemed to stress was that the, the information collected by the state does not differ from that collected by the federal government and the IRS in a, in a similar manner. So is the argument put forth by the parties here, the original plaintiffs, um, is it equally forceful or directed towards that compelled disclosure by the IRS? And are there any suits that have been um, conceived or directed towards towards that? Um, disclosure requirement. Well, I certainly think it's it's um, you know problematic to treat the injury as less simply because uh, there's some sort of disclosure somewhere else. I mean, it, it's it's possible that you could say, well, uh, this has been disclosed in some level, so the the level of privacy kind of expected uh, is lower. But again, we're we're here in a you know in in the exacting scrutiny First Amendment land. You would think. Each of these disclosures and to whoever it should be should be required to kind of justify it on its own merits. So, um, you know, the IRS in handling uh, taxes for people who have written off contributions to charities, um, you can kind of see this more this close connection between gaining information of the top donors, who are the people who have then presumably written off the most amount of money. on their IRS tax returns and obtaining the Schedule B from the charities who have received those donations. Whereas here, again, uh, yes, they're only demanding this document that the IRS also gets, but they're demanding it for this much lower, uh, you know, what, I, what I would consider a much less compelling interest of general investigation and enforcing uh, laws against fraud. This particular legal question, as the Ninth Circuit reference was, I think, also addressed by the Second Circuit in a recent case. Um, so why, in your view, do you think organizations like the plaintiffs here are keen now to address issues like like this particular one? I mean, I think it's one that's timely because it, it does appear that um, more and more states uh, seem to be demanding uh, disclosure. Um, these types of interests uh, of 
free association and free speech seem to be getting, uh, in some instances, less scrutiny. And I think that the area where they're getting the lowest scrutiny is in uh, disclosure laws. So whereas we've seen First Amendment law in most other areas uh, continue very continue to be strengthened. We've had very strong First Amendment opinions out of the Supreme Court uh, over the last few terms. Yet the one area where we've seen kind of a step back is in this area of free association when it comes to donations, as if uh, giving money uh, itself deserves less scrutiny just because it's not a direct speech, even though, you know, clearly here with donations to public interest nonprofits and groups of that nature, it's clear that the association is based to further some some sort of speech, some sort of a public interest in that regard. What's your argument um, countering maybe the point that, yes, these are compelled disclosures of some of the, the, the highest donors to organizations like this, um, but it's not just that full stop, but rather – um, a disclosure sort of in exchange for a subsidy granted by the government in, form, in the form of tax exempt status and tax deductions for the organizations and the donors. Why isn't it a fair trade-off there? Well, I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure it's necessarily not a fair trade-off. Of course, that, that's one that's being made with the, the organization and the tax exempt status with the IRS. So I, I think it's very difficult to use that to then justify uh, the disclosed the state disclosure laws uh, as well. Um, I, and I'd also, I mean, perhaps this even goes to your, your earlier question about the fact that this is something that, that is already handed over to the IRS. One excellent solution to this uh, problem of state disclosure laws, if, if the federal government really wanted to uh, kind of resolve it, is simply to stop demanding the Schedule B forms <laughs> entirely. Uh, because, of course, I think I think a state demanding that information in the absence of uh, the Schedule B form would would be very difficult to uphold under the First Amendment. Maybe sort of placing this question within the, the broader context of you know, uh, a fairly robust public discourse in, in the, the age after Citizens United as to you know where um, contributions to political campaigns come from and through what avenues they come. Um, you know, one argument put forth by many is that organizations like 501c3 um, charities can tend to really toe the line or you know step a bit over it when it comes to their um, involvement in in political campaigns, uh, though officially they are you know not allowed to to spend money on behalf of candidates, um, but but can do things that come fairly close to doing so. Um, you know, when folks think of charities. You think of organizations aiming towards you know, public betterment, helping those that, that need it. And so it would seem like a, a worthwhile end on the one hand to make sure they you know, behave in, in the way the law requires. But also, you know, one equity put forth by many would seem to be that transparency and political spending is a pretty, a pretty weighty one. It's one that was touched on by, by many during the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings last week, including um, Senator Whitehouse, who really tried to hit home uh, just how um, in, how much political outside spending has increased over the past several years. So I guess, you know, how does this particular question and this particular issue fit into that larger, broader context in, in your mind? I, I guess, uh, <laughs> you know, but perhaps what I would answer is that, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, to believe that um, you know, kind of this untraceable money or, or 
uh, money being spent from outside interests or pooled and used by these organizations, um, you know, the first thing is, I guess you have to, to believe that that itself is a problem. And I'm, I'm not convinced that that itself is a problem. <laughs> uh, you know, at bottom, it, it is a convenient means for large groups of individuals who may uh, have very little say to pool their funds in a way that, that provides uh, what they see as a, a voice in the political system. Um, so I, I also just think that, uh, you know, to think that, um, I think that the incentive for people to to uh, pool money and use it to try and influence the public uh, is probably impossible. So then you have to ask, um, is there more harm done in trying to police how these funds are used and in granting government a power to prevent certain people from speaking in particular ways through pooling their funds uh, versus just allowing that money to be used in the political process and understanding that, that it is a part of the political process these days. Just one last one. Do you expect the, um, th this case to, to move forward in any way, either um, with a, a petition for a rehearing on Bonk in the Ninth Circuit, or do you think it has a, uh, a date with the Supreme Court in uh, this term or next? I, I certainly wouldn't be surprised by either uh, uh, a request for in-bank rehearing re or uh, failing that. I, w I would think this would go forward to the Supreme Court. And I think, um, especially given the kind of the weight of the evidence as applied that was collected in the district court, I think it will uh, be a case that would be likely to be picked up for, for in-bank review. Okay. I will wait and see then. But uh, for now, Jeremy Talcott from the Pacific Legal Foundation, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And with that, our show for September 14th, 2018 is complete. Thanks very much to all three of my guests, Tara Malloy and Megan McCallan from the Campaign Legal Center, and Jeremy Talcott from the Pacific Legal Foundation. And thank you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget that one CLE credit can be yours by finding a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>